you have a Bible, you can turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. We'll read starting in verse 18 to the end of the chapter.
You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 8. And read verses 23 through 27. We enter into another sequence of uh, three wonders. Here's the second cycle of three wonders here. The well-known episode of the storm at the sea. Lend your attention, this is God's word. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Thus ends the reading of God's word. Turn me in prayer. Our God and our Father, please bless the reading and the preaching of your word even now. Prepare our hearts to receive. Help us to see plainly, Lord, the excellencies of your Son. An episode many have heard so many times, Lord, the danger is to gloss over it and to miss the wonder of Jesus Christ, a true God, true man, Lord over the seas, our Lord, the one whom you sent to gather, to seek, and to save the lost. So may our hearts be filled with confidence towards him as we see that he is trustworthy supremely trustworthy. That you have sent him, Lord, for our good, and for your glory. Be pleased, O oh Lord, to do these things among us even now, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. something terrifying and yet somehow was enabled to stand and even persevere in the face of that difficulty. What makes a person brave? For me it was a friend. When I moved overseas I was confronted with all sorts of experiences that were terrifying from the big to the small. Simply having to go to the store was in and of itself a rather terrifying experience because they didn't speak English and I wasn't very good at Ukrainian. 
And literally, food was at stake. <laughs> it was scary. All sorts of things were scary, but the Lord was so kind to bless me with a friend, a dear friend. And as I reflected on our experience together, I realized that my confidence in him was intimately tied to the confidence I derived from him. Because I was confident in him, I found that I actually partook of a confidence that I didn't possess natively. Have you had this experience? I think it plays out reasonably on just a human scale. Chances are you have a, a parent or a, a spouse or a friend whom you esteem, whom you respect, whom you love, about whose love you're confident, about whose ability you're confident. And then strangely enough, that confidence in them actually ennobles you to a posture of courage to face things that left to yourself you wouldn't face as well. Have you had this experience? Am I alone in this? Can you resonate with this? Because that seems to be what's at the heart of the passage here. Jesus says the confidence that you can have in me ought and should result in a confidence that you get from me. Now, unfortunately, the process breaks down here for these men. <laughs> but that's what the Lord assumes here, and that's what Matthew is laboring to get us to see because he wants us to be confident in this one. He's saying he is supremely competent. <laughs> He's supremely powerful. He's supremely good. He is at hand, even if he's acting in a way that's confusing to you. And that confidence that you can have in him because of who he is reasonably generates in you courage. Oh, that beautiful virtue of fortitude. That doesn't expel fear entirely but it keeps fear from dominating. There's a difference between those two things. So let's consider our friend here, our king here, and the confidence that he would have us take in him and from him as we rest upon him through all and every circumstance. Four points this morning. Josh Sutton told me I have an extra hour to preach. <laughs> Four points this morning. <laughs> I'm up to the challenge. Are you? We'll see. <laughs> One, the dreadful storm. Two, the sleeping king. Three, the prayer of faith and fear. Four, the risen king. One, the dreadful storm. Verses 23 and 24. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped 
by the waves. First and foremost, this is a miracle episode. First and foremost, this is a literal storm. Don't spiritualize this too quickly. <laughs> Don't jump into the window that we get into the storms of the Christian life. First and foremost, this is a storm. That's what this is. Now, it is more than that. It is a true window into the life of discipleship, but sit first with the storm. Because this is nothing less than an eyewitness account that the wind and the waves obey Jesus of Nazareth. That is astonishing. This is an extraordinarily powerful storm. Matthew calls it a great storm, or perhaps we would better call it a violent storm, an intense storm. And he draws particular attention to the waves that are beating over the sides of the boat and filling the boat with water. This is a terrifying experience. There's a vulnerability to it. There's a helplessness to it that Matthew profiles as the first element of this scene. The power of the sea is enormous. Children, have you ever been to the ocean? Children, have you been to the ocean? Have you seen the waves? You hear their roar? Even just the waves crashing on the shore of a ocean beach is enough to give you the sense that the sea is a monstrous power and it has very little regard for human life i was struck by that as we were at the ocean just this past summer and my little ones were running around on the shore and i heard all sorts of warnings about riptides and things happening before you can get your mind around it i was struck this is an enormous power I've been in waves that have picked me up and slammed me onto the bottom of the ocean floor and pinned me there, and I'm a grown man. Maisie and Michael and Olivia running around. It's truly a terrifying juxtaposition. Psalm 107 marvels at the power of the ocean. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. You can feel the rise of the boat on the crest of the wave and the plunge into the heart of the sea on the other side. You can feel the fear of the sailors reeling, staggering, nearly driven out of their minds with fear and helplessness. What can they do in the face of such a monstrous power? It's an enormous hostility. Mark the encouragement that comes when we consider that this is a real storm. This isn't a metaphor for trials. This is the trial. That's the first point. 
Children, do you ever get scared during thunderstorms? Do you ever get scared during storms, children? No, you guys are braver than that. <laughs> storms can be frightening. The thunder is loud, the lightnings are bright, the rain and the wind howl. Did you know that you can pray during those storms? You can speak to your Father in heaven. Say, Father, this storm is big and scary. But I know that you're more powerful than this storm. And you love me. Please help me to be brave and trust you. Beloved, it's a real storm here. That gives us confidence. When, when literal earthquakes shake this earth, when literal famines spread like wildfire, we can know that Christ is still with us. We can know that the Father has not forsaken us. He can and has cared for his own through actual famine, through actual storms. Not metaphorically, actually, beloved. Mark, if there's not a vein of confidence for you there. Mark, if you don't brush over this too quickly and try to get to the spiritual or the takeaway is that he's Lord of the sea. <laughs> but he protects. And we need to know this because Christ is going to tell us that storms are coming. Literal storms are coming. That's what he says in Matthew 24, 6 through 8. You'll hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdoms, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Oddly enough, Matthew uses this word earthquake. He uses a different word than Mark and Luke. It's the same word here. This is not a metaphor. This is literal rumblings at the level of creation. Don't be alarmed, he says. That's incredible. The monstrous power of a heaving earth, the monstrous power of heaving nations. Don't be alarmed, he says. The reason he tells us not to be alarmed is not because it's not terrifying. He's like, no, no, it's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. He's just more powerful than all of these things. The Lord teaches us that these things are going to take place until his return. The suggestion from the image of the birth pangs, I myself not having been through labor, but having been an observer of labor, these things grow more frequent and more intense the closer the baby gets. Don't let it alarm you, he says. It's a remarkable invitation to comfort. It's a remarkable invitation to confidence. Mark if things haven't unnerved you these days. Mark if the whispers of the war to end all wars swirling about every single circle isn't unnerving at some level. 
You're tempted to go down all sorts of rabbit trails. All of a sudden, everyone's like, yeah, I'm a dispensationalist. I'm a premillennialist. It's like, look, you're still reformed. You're still a millennial. <laughs> At the end of the day, don't be alarmed. That much we can be sure of. Because the Lord reigns, beloved. He's already told us that if the world order itself is shaken, God still can provide. Isn't that what he says when he profiles the lilies and the birds? He highlights, he says, look, the birds don't sow, the birds don't reap, they're fed. Look, the lilies don't spin, the lilies don't toil, they're clothed. He's not saying, hey, don't worry about working, God will provide. He's saying, look, if the order is disrupted such that you can't work, God's not bound by that. He's bigger than that. Your confidence doesn't rest on what you think is reasonable. It rests in what God says is actual. And that's his care for you, beloved. That's so good. <laughs> we can mark also how this storm is a glimpse into actual trials. If it's a literal storm on the one hand, it's also a true picture of all sorts of different trials. And we're struck by trials being a messy affair. It's a messy affair, aren't they? You hear it from Psalm 107. Their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. The disciples are overcome by fear here as true disciples, as sailors. <laughs> These are dreadful and disorienting experiences. Your world flipped upside down, the ground reeling from beneath you. Only a fool would say, how interesting. I hope I get to experience such things. Why did Gandalf not want to hazard the mines? Because he was afraid? I mean, maybe in a sense, but in the healthiest sense. Ultimately, it was because he was humble and wise. <laughs> That's the posture of true knowledge, not some brazen lunacy that's like, bring on, bring on, bring on. That person ends up in the fetal position on the ground. Mm -hmm. So either way, you're going to get humble. <laughs> the Lord encourages us in this posture of humility when he instructs us as his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. And you can understand why. If this storm is a literal storm and a true window into those trials, mark how brutal they can be. Mark how foolish we would be to court the storm. That posture of humility in the face of trials sobers us, but it also makes us a little bit slower to resort to empty platitudes 
when someone's going through a season like this. It makes us shrink back from, well, hang in there, it'll be over soon. It's like these men are out of their minds with fear. Out of their minds with fear. Makes us slow to think, well, there's probably just some quick, easy fix. You're probably doing it wrong. The, the, the oar. Did you grab the oar? <laughs> or worse, like we think, yeah, you probably deserve it. <laughs> I'm not sure what you did wrong, but pff, I'm not going to do that. Good luck. Any sort of hypersimplistic, callous view is kept from us. By an understanding that these are true disciples going through a true ordeal, and we are like them, beloved. This makes us quick to pray for one another. Pray that God keeps us from the storm. Or if in the midst of the storm, pray he preserves through the storm, beloved. Quick to pray, beloved. Slow to diagnose. Quick to pray. These things are incredibly difficult, as I trust you know. And they can be more confusing still by a sleeping king. That was the disciples' experience. The king is asleep, and they don't get it. This contrast is stunning. Don't miss this contrast. It is a literary masterpiece. The raging sea juxtaposed against the sleeping king. One toiling, unrested, the other peacefully asleep. Matthew brings this out with an economy of language, the prolonged description of the sea and the waves, and then this very brief three-word phrase, he was asleep, but he slept. The he is profiled there. You don't need the pronoun in the Greek. It's like, but he slept. <laughs> this is not pretend sleep. This is true sleep. He's not faking it here. He's asleep here. And it is a deep sleep. How can he be asleep? First off, he's exhausted. He's exhausted. Recall the narrative. From the moment he entered Peter's house, he has been working. People have been brought to him all night long, and he's been healing. He's been expelling demons. He's been up all night, we're led to believe working he's exhausted you can even hear it almost in the exchange with the scribe he's like look the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and i'm tired and so it's not surprising here that the scene opens up and he's asleep he is exhausted i think sometimes we can brush by the true humanity of christ like he's just pretending to be a true man. He's just putting on air. No, he's a true man. He's really tired here, and he falls asleep. And this, oddly, is comforting for us. Because it means he knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to have to obey when you're tired. Mark, if that's not one of the hardest times to obey. The end of the day comes... Still got to muster up some love? No. Like, I can easily justify my kingdom turning into a tyranny when I'm tired. Why don't you think about me? 
I'm the one who's working so hard. Everyone serve me. It's like, no, no, look, he knows. He knows what it's like to be exhausted and to continue to exist under the trust and the obedience of the Father as he does everything that's set before him to do. And that means he's able to help us. That means that when we're tired, when that flare of tyranny brightens the night sky of our heart, we can run to him and say, I'm exhausted. I don't know how to care for others right now. I don't know how to deny myself. I don't have it in me to deny myself right now. He says, yeah, I, I know. It's hard. It's really hard when you're tired. I'm glad you're here. Let me help you. Run to him when you're tired. He knows. We can see in his true sleep, true exhaustion, and true understanding. He knows our frame, beloved, in a most intimate sense. But we can also see remarkable trust. That he's sleeping as true man here. I've mentioned the phrase that I really like from Moby Dick. When Ishmael goes to sleep at that oceanside inn, the narrator describes, and he entrusted himself to God. That's how he describes Ishmael going to sleep. And he entrusted himself to God. You hazard a remarkable vulnerability when you give yourself over to unconsciousness. And he entrusted himself to God. How can the sun sleep in a storm like this? A storm which was driving his disciples, hardened sailors all, mad with fear, and he's asleep truly asleep, soundly asleep. And you're like, well, yeah, of course. He's true God. Of course he slept. Think about the absurdity of what you just said. God doesn't sleep. He's not sleeping as true God here. He's sleeping as true man in a profound trust in the heavenly Father. Beloved, the Lord does not call you to anything which he himself has not already done as true man. He's going to call you to trust the Father in the face of very trying circumstances. Mark how the Son trusted the Father in very trying circumstances with an otherworldly repose. Mark how confident the Son must be in the Father's goodness. Mark how confident the Son is in the Father's power. Mark how confident the Son is in the Father's care, such that he sleeps in the face of this storm. Can you marvel at this, King? Marvel, beloved, at the repose of this King. This is perhaps as great a wonder as what he does when he awakes. You tell me. You who know how easy it is not to trust in very small storms. You tell me what's more wonderful. His perfect repose in the face of the storm to end all storms. We're quieting it with a word. I'd say there are two wonders on display here. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the wonder beyond that is we don't get to participate in the stilling of the storm with a word. But by his grace and his spirit, he does call us to participate in the repose in the face of this life's storms. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Do not be anxious in anything, in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You're never going to participate in a power that tells the storm to hush. Not that iteration of it. But make no mistake, it's the same power that enables the Son of Man to trust quietly in his Father as all around him gives way. The Spirit which enabled the Son in that is the same Spirit at work in us which drives us to prayer and thanksgiving and making our supplications known to the one who cares for, for us. And it's the same Spirit who brings to pass a peace which surpasses understanding. Yeah, I would say this repose surpasses understanding here. It surpasses what's reasonable here. Just as saints persevering in the face of all manner of persecution and trial and difficulty with the song that says Jesus Christ is Lord still that's power and that we do participate in and our prayers are no small part of it so we can consider next the prayer of faith and fear verse 25 and they went and woke him saying save us Lord we are perishing Okay, we got to be honest here. Can you imagine doing anything different? That seems to be the most perplexing part of the passage. In one sense, they seem to do well. Like, what else could you imagine doing here? Calvin wrestles with this. Calvin, a pious prayer, one would think. <laughs> For what else had they to do when they were lost than to employ safety from Christ? Matthew Henry wrestles with it. Matthew Henry sees much that is commendable in this prayer. Their belief that Jesus could save them in such dreadful circumstances. Their address to him as Lord. Even their fervency is commendable, Henry says. It seems exactly what they should do. Run to Jesus in prayer. They're brought to the end of themselves by this. These waves are overpowering the boat. Water is filling this vessel. Drowning seems likely. They know that they do not possess what it takes to get through. Again, these are fishermen. They're not overreacting here. They know when they've met their match. This isn't a land lover. <laughs> this is one who knows this very sea, saying, yep, we don't got what it takes to overcome this storm. All their skill, all their strength is useless before the enormity of this power. I'll make a little micro point here. Mark that true courage, spiritual fortitude is not a natural attainment. It's not the byproduct of human strength or wisdom 
were experienced. These men had all those things, and all those things failed these men. Your courage on the day of trouble will not be a direct result of how strong you are, how clever you are, how many resources you have. True courage comes through true faith taking hold of the true king who has overcome the world. And there's encouragement in that. Because you're way weaker than you think you are. And so the confidence that you have in your attainments is going to be shown to be as helpless as the seafaring skills that these men possessed in the face of this storm. But on the one hand, it seems right to say with Calvin and Matthew Henry that they certainly did not do poorly in praying to Christ. <laughs> That's exactly what our troubles ought to do to remind us that there's only one refuge, that all human faith all human strength will fail. All human cunning will fail. All human protection will fail. There's only one high tower. There's only one true refuge. There's only one bulwark never failing. And it is our God in the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we flee in faith. Isn't that what Paul says? Not just in the face of difficulty, but in the face of ease. We're in need of the the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Beloved, you don't have enough strength to abound, let alone be brought low. Mark, if we don't constantly operate in the delusion that we only need to run to him in the tough stuff. He says, good or ill, much or little, ease or hardship, fullness of life, heat of sickness. You need the strength that only comes through him. That's the secret. So in that sense, we ought to see in them the very path that our heart ought to take in the face of any and every circumstance. Windfall? Go to the Lord. Dwindling bank account? Go to the Lord. Pantries overflowing? Go to the Lord. The last can of soup? Go to the Lord in every and all circumstances. So then where did they do poorly? <laughs> and we find out when the king rises. That's how the scene closes. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The risen king speaks two words, a word of chastisement and a word of rebuke. And the men marvel, perhaps at both. We find out how they did poorly. It was not that they did not believe. 
It was not that they had no true faith. It was the smallness of that faith. It was that fear overpowered faith. Matthew Henry writes, the Lord does not chasten them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. If we can say that they did well in that by true faith they fled to Christ, we must also make room to wrestle with how much weakness and smallness true faith can be attended and how the weakness and the smallness of faith is no small contribution to the greatness of our fears. Can you hear that here? Oftentimes we think of faith, usually and rightly, as a yes or no question. Does one believe or not? And that's a vital question. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord or not? You must ask yourself that question. That is an inescapable question. It is a vital question. The one who believes has eternal life. We see that the possession of the smallest true faith saves because it takes hold of the one who is more powerful than all. We see that here. They did not perish. The Lord did not cast them off. He continues to teach them. He continues to love them. But the chastisement comes when we consider that faith isn't just a yes or a no question. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also a less, more, weak, strong, sick, healthy question. Or to shift it, shift the image here, one is either alive or dead, and yet life has all sorts of different seasons and stages to it, doesn't it? There's the immature to mature. There is the young to the old, the weak to the strong, the sick to the healthy. Scripture gives us all those coordinates, beloved. Do not collapse them. You've got to work a little bit, but we can hold all these things in the tension that Scripture holds them in. The Lord chastens not the absence of faith, but the smallness of faith. We do this with our children, don't we? We go to them and we say, you know better than this. You know better than this. There's nothing but love in that statement. And that's what Christ says to them. He says, you know better by this point. You, you ought to know better by this point. It's stunning that he does this while the storm is still raging. I don't know if you caught that little narrative development. This thing is still roaring, and he's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what is the problem? He says this as the risen king. Imagine how many of our trials, which seem to us the end of all things, are going to be seen in a dramatically different light when we see Christ face to face. I mean, you can't but feel even a mild retrospective on your recent trial ought to give you plenty of insight into this experience. That's how he works, our trials. He brings us through them. He doesn't cast us off. But then he deals with us. 
Say, do you, do you remember how fussy you got? Should, shouldn't have been like that. Do, do you remember how faithful I've been seeing you through countless iterations of this? So, tell, like, what do you doubt? Do you, is it my goodness that you doubt? Is it my power that you doubt? Is it my care? Oh, I know. It's like I don't act in the way that you think I should act. But aren't you a big part of the problem? That's just trusting you and slapping my face on it. Do you trust me? That's how he chastens them, beloved. That's how he chastens us. Do you have categories for that? Do you have categories for the Lord chastening us in this regard? He does it in love. And mark this, he does it to prepare them for the next trial. This isn't the last storm on the sea that they're going to meet. Mark how this trial prepares them for the next one. And how they do better in the next one. And yet there's still room to grow. Such is the Christian life. Beloved, we have no tolerance for this sort of thing. We're so soft. We're like, no, only tell me that I do well all the time. I only want to hear the good things that I've done. And if you criticize me in any way, I'm done with you. You're soft. There, I've said it. It's the Lord's rebuke. He sent me to do it. You're soft. I'm soft. Reflect upon how the most recent trial, you were acting a lot more out of fear than faith. Just any sort of sober reflection on that will show that very thing. Because much weakness attends even the highest attainment of faith in this life, beloved. That means there's always going to be room to grow in this way. And Christ is committed to that because... He loves his own. And his own thrive when they are nearest to him. He rises here to the height of majesty. The storm is raging around him. And he says, cowards. Oh, you of little faith. And then he turns and he shows them why. Matthew doesn't even record what he says. He just rebukes. It's like it could have been a shh, shh, and a great calm ensued. Again, mark that this is an eyewitness account. A sailor, this is the rhyme of the ancient mariner. This is the rhyme of the mariners on that day coming. Let, let me tell you, you who are going to trade in market, you who are going to whatever wedding, come, come here. I'll tell you a story that's worth hearing. We got on a boat with Jesus of Nazareth. It was the worst storm I had ever seen. He said, shh, and the storm stopped. That's what happened. They're like, that didn't happen. Like, it was probably just the storm gradually died out. He's like, no, it stopped immediately, and the profundity of the calm was matched only by the prior intensity of the storm. Shh. It happened. This man, this king did that. This man, this king is your Lord. Those of you who know him in faith. Those of you who know him in faith are postured in the same way that they're postured, marveling 
What sort of man is this? Again, Matthew's literary mastery says, and the men marveled, asking, what sort of man is this? They're like, we're men. By any reasonable account, we are brave men. We did not do well. He slept and then told the sea to be quiet. Are we men? What sort of men is he? (laughs) He's the king. That's what Matthew is trying to get us to see. True son of Abraham. True son of David. True son of Mary. True son of God. One who is worthy of your trust. (laughs) The only one who is worthy of your trust, of your love, of your adoration, of all that you are and all that you have. Ask yourself, beloved, what sort of man is this? Whether you're asking it for the first time, For the thousandth time, there's a lot of ways you could answer this. But the one thing that you have to say is, he's not like anyone else. He's worthy. He's worthy of my trust. He's worthy to be followed. I pray that you see that. And I pray that you take no small comfort in belonging to him. Let's pray. Press upon our hearts, O Lord, the truth of your word, the excellencies of your king, the wonder of this true day, this encounter with the storm and the waters of the Sea of Galilee, which these men witness. And we receive their testimony, even now, that these things are true and there will be more wonders to come. Help us to take appropriate confidence in this one whom you have set forth to save his people from their sins. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.